0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with former President of the Australian Human Rights Commission, Emeritus Professor Gillian Triggs. She joined me in the studio to talk about her upcoming lecture at the University of Melbourne called The Decline of Parliamentary Democracy in a Post-Truth Era. And Gillian Triggs joins me in the studio. Hi, Gillian. Hello. Hi. and. I mean, this is an exciting um, topic in many ways and uh, I know that you're not the only person speaking about it but certainly you um, have a great deal of knowledge and experience when it comes to evidence and uh, how it's used in politics or perhaps ignored um, and particularly in your role um, as the former president of the Australian Human Rights Commission um, and and that's obviously was a very public role um, and certainly I'm looking forward to drawing on your experiences with that as well. Um, but first
1: of all how is life after that <laughs> role? Is it, is it any quieter? Well it doesn't seem to be. Um, I, I must say I'm enjoying not being in quite the same, um, the centre of the storm anymore. Uh, Others are are taking up those cudgels, but... um Uh, It's rather nice to have a bit of time to reflect. I've just finished a book called Speaking Up, uh, which is really what I've been doing and trying to do. Um, But I've also found that I'm spending a lot more time giving speeches to small community groups, faith-based groups, large groups of of women for International Women's Day and so on, but a very, very high level of interest in Australia in understanding what's happening with um, people's uh, disquiet. About a decline in what they think they're seeing in in Parliament, and a rejection of evidence. Um, I'm from a 60s generation at the University of Melbourne, and and science and evidence and reports were everything. That's that's what you know underpinned uh, government policy. It, it underpinned what we wanted to think about and believe in. Uh, but we're seeing now that we've almost got a surfeit of facts, which are all too readily. Pushed to one side in favour of a more subjective ideological approach to a, any particular issue.
0: Yes. And this ties in with the conversation I just had um, with Pat Kinane, who was a senior right. writer um, for Barack Obama during mm-hmm. his presidency. And he was saying that in that, um, the time right at the beginning, and even probably throughout, there was a shared evidence base, a general acceptance between um, politicians and the media that some facts were not contested. Mm-hmm. And I guess now it seems that all the facts are contested in, and in fact may not be facts at all. I mean, how do we now know what is a fact?
1: <laughs> well, of course, I, I really do love giving that example of the, of the uh, President Trump's inauguration when, the, you know, the, more people in the entire history of the universe had arrived. And this was objectively, clearly, without question, false. <laughs> Uh, and I think um, uh, it was it. Kellyanne t- Conway. Kellyanne Conway said, um, "Well, the press uh, officer who said this was simply providing an alternative fact." Well, there of course is no such thing as an alternative fact. Um, I think they, we, we have a lot of evidence. Um, on we've um, just done, uh, the Human Rights Commission just done a major piece of work on harassment in universities. Mm-hmm. Um, what's the response to that report? Another, more research on the same thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, in other words, across the community, we know the facts of Indigenous incarceration rates, out-of-home care for children, uh, indefinite detention um, of, of asylum seekers, the legacy caseload. We have all these facts, um, but they're not being acted on. And I think that that's the big difference from the generation I grew up in uh, and today, where there's a tolerance for another view that is not factually based. And if I, if I can say one of the things that's starting to be clear to me is that the extent to which um, many in the broadcasting industry, I'm quite certain not triple R, but where they attempt to provide balance. Now, what balance does is give air and oxygen to a completely unsupported position, but it gives an appearance of of balance because you've given airtime to somebody to put a contrary view. Now, to the extent that you do that and they're challenged and they have to support it on the basis of evidence, that's all good journalism. I like to see that. But all too often, you find that the question by the interviewer it gives so much oxygen to the the false position that it's actually given it um, credibility in the public arena. And I think the issue is not balanced. The the issue is where does the truth lie? What are the facts?
0: Mm. And, I mean, that's a great point in terms of media and the changing practice in journalism, which is to find something that is uh, either entertaining or catchy or... Attention-grabbing in order to garner clicks um, for advertising has meant uh, that a lot of uh, journalists have been encouraged to have a sensational headline or a sensational um, focus, whereas the real story can be quite mundane but sober and serious. And I mean, that's something that I've particularly noticed. Um, you know, reading a range of newspapers since I was a child um, up till now, there used to be um, this kind of commitment to you know the, the facts the story even if it's not the most exciting thing in the world um, but now there's this new kind of change that even the most serious uh, news pieces and and articles and outlets are not you know giving it that same attention that same nuance that same detail and depth.
1: Uh, Well, I I think that's very noticeable. There's a particular exception, which I, I might mention, if I may, and that's the Saturday paper, where you find the journalists have produced thousands of words looking at the evidence to take a particular position. Now, you might disagree with the position that the writer has taken at the end of it, but at the same time, there's an enormous amount of of accumulated evidence to support their case. And you can go back and check that if you want to, but you don't find that in the mainstream media. But I quite agree with your point about the the news item having to be sort of stimulating sexy out there in some ways. And uh, not very long ago, I was checking something Mr Abbott had said about all um, uh, gay uh, LGBTI people in the Australian community had exactly the same legal rights as everybody else in the community. Now that is legally wrong. Um, But it was a great statement and it it got a lot of airplay at the time. And I think a lot of people would say, well, you know, what's all this marriage equality about? Uh, You know, they've got the same legal rights, um, just leave our marriage alone. Uh, I then looked at a fact check site, which went point by point by point through the various legal impediments that somebody, particularly um, in a um, a same-sex marriage, would suffer as a consequence and and their children. Now, when I read it, I got to the end of it and I thought, actually, that was terribly boring. What Mr Abbott was saying was far more <laughs> interesting. And I think that's part of the problem, yeah. that, that that we've got this this rapid news cycle. It's got to be, uh, it's got to grab the attention. Uh, and th- that is what carries the day. And that is why these mythologies, particularly, for example, about asylum seekers or indigenous parenting um, or, or Muslims and terrorism, uh, these mythologies are easy to create because they can be put out in a three word slogan. And some people actually want to believe it because it's too difficult to get get to grips with the facts.
0: Yes, absolutely. And I mean, a, a prime example um, is that there's a lot of pressure on certain media outlets to maintain a certain version of balance, um, such as the ABC, feeling that pressure, very publicly getting criticised by um, coalition ministers and others. Uh, and That's one of the things which is quite concerning is that, um, you know, someone or an organization like the ABC that is intended to be independent needs to be for um, the health of our democracy is um, constantly being put under this pressure by politicians to, um, you know, air sides of a certain story that are fringe or are not substantiated by evidence. And so it creates this fear and paranoia of having a position at all, even if that position is fully based Mm -hmm. on facts and evidence. Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you um, deal with that tricky situation? Because I know you were also head up a government um, body that was supposed to be independent. Um, It was very separate for a reason um, in our parliamentary democracy. How does one deal with that kind of pressure?
1: Well, with extreme difficulty. I mean, it it, it obviously wasn't easy at that that time to have um, what we knew to be accurate, um, factual reports, then linked to what we knew to be an accurate statement of the law, and to have those very measured, carefully um, calibrated reports that, but but which stuck to the the point that we were ultimately making—that um, the condition of children in uh, long term. Uh, unprecedented levels of detention offshore was illegal and needed to be changed. Those kinds of uh, reports, sexual harassment, incarceration of Indigenous Australians, domestic violence, all of these questions um, were dismissed by some politicians as being politically biased uh, and as being part of a sort of politically correct nanny state. Now, these are slogans, but they're slogans that people grasp onto in an increasingly fractured, stressful worrying contemporary life. So I don't, I understand why it's happening, but I think that it's an abuse of, abuse of um, power by, by members, particularly members of the cabinet who should know better. I think though that one of the things as a lawyer that I find so distressing is that parliament has always been the bulwark against executive power whether you go back to the Magna Carta and the Barons against King John or or the, the battles with James the first um, Parliament grew as a mechanism that would check the power of the executive. But what we now have in Australia is a Parliament that um, very often both the major parties are actually, have very, very little difference between them. Very little. And in fact, they, they move in such a way that there's you can't put much between them except where they've actually decided on a tax policy, for example, that they are going to make a point of difference. On a lot of human rights questions, you actually find that the the parties are, the, are very, very close and they have been on asylum seeker issues, for example. Um, that is a worry because the check and the balance that Parliament used to play is now not played to anything like the same degree and the parliamentary committees that are supposed to assess whether for example counter-terrorism legislation is proportionate and fair those committees break down on party lines and you don't get a you don't get an outcome so we in addition to that of course i think the australian public are well aware of the decline in the standard of behavior of parliamentarians the 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 um the 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 ripping off of the of the entitlements when when this very same politicians will be prepared to demonize somebody getting a welfare benefit uh, are themselves um, taking significantly larger sums of money out of the system um, by overstating their their, uh, their travel and, and other entitlements in Canberra. So you see a very poor level of behaviour. The level of debate is pretty childish in fact sometimes i think i've i've tuned into the goon show uh, not that anybody <laughs> listens to that anymore but uh, but really a very very poor level of behavior and and at the personal level as we all know from the recent debate but i think all of this is coming together to diminish the capacity of parliamentary democracy to control a growing um abuse of executive power And. That's a great
0: point because, as you've said uh, in the past, executive powers are growing and the discretion that ministers have has increased and that is also, um, in many cases, not able to be checked by the courts. What are some of the most recent and particularly important examples of that worrying trend?
1: Well, one that I think is, is, is rather a silent area of growth of those in detention... Um, is, uh, well, of course, we do have the continuing problem of asylum seekers and refugees being detained in Australia as well, something like 1,300 people quite apart from those. But we, what we now have a growing number of visas being cancelled on ministerial discretion. Um, and many of the powers of the minister are neither compelable, you can't go to the court and compel the minister to make a decision, uh, like accepting an application for a visa, uh, nor can you review it in the courts. It's not judicially reviewable unless uh, very, very particular cases of a mistake of law, which doesn't really happen very much. Usually the minister exercises that discretion. The difficulty, however, in going back to what we were saying a moment ago, is that What I'm describing sounds very boring and not very sexy at all and uh, very abstract. But when you uh, look at at individual cases of uh, people being moved out of their accommodation, people uh, who've lived all their lives in Australia being held on Christmas Island now for months, possibly even years, before they're deported perhaps to New Zealand... Um, We're starting to see ministers exercising and expect to exercise these discretions without the ability of the courts to to rein them in. And I think that that's very worrying. Recent examples would be the two new bills that have just been introduced into parliament on um, foreign interference and uh, those that would... Uh, 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 under the electoral laws, would, would uh, regulate um, the advocacy of charities. Um, these are all giving. Gr- if, if these two bills are passed, but they're again, it's technical. The public doesn't know about them. It's all happening in Canberra. They're often rushed through at night. Um, people don't understand the implications of these. These this kind of legislation, and yet it's passing constantly, and it's building a picture where. As I will be arguing on 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 Friday, it's building a picture where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. If you took any one piece of legislation, you might say, well. Jillian, what are you making a fuss about? But when you start looking at it as a whole, you see this massive grab for power by the executive, which is not being constrained in the usual ways.
0: Exactly. And some of it is quite unbridled. Like I recall a particular example when um, the immigration minister wanted to have the discretion to strip citizen sh- citizenship from people who only had one citizenship. Uh, so that would therefore make That's them right. stateless. Uh, that was then, I mean changed modified a little bit Mm -hmm. after a great period of outrage and um you know outcry from the legal community Mm -hmm. because obviously it was highly technical and not many people could understand the implications of this i mean that's one extreme example but it does really seem to highlight um i guess the intent of Behind these changes, which is that, well, we know best. And, um, you know, in order to keep everyone safe and to uh, prevent these horrible things from happening, we need to have more and more power. And the Labour right. Party
1: has supported that's a right. lot of these reforms. Well, I think that that's what's so distressing. If you had a strong opposition that re- objected to it, you could say this is a healthy parliamentary democracy. But that's not actually happening. And the reason is that it's been so easy for the coalition in particular to conflate. Border security, international terrorism, with rising Islamophobia, um, with, with asylum seekers, many of whom are of the Islamic faith. And what, what politicians have done is to say we need all these additional powers. Uh, to to counter-terrorism, to deal with asylum seekers, uh, to deal with anybody with dissent in the community in order to protect our borders and save national security. Now, for most ordinary Australians, they'd say, well, you know, these are dangerous times. Of course we understand why governments are doing this. But the difficulty Mm -hmm. is that those laws are becoming increasingly disproportionate um, and, and unnecessary, in my view, Uh, especially when you try to put things in proportion. Um, I think the point has been made by others that uh, a woman a week is killed by her partner or former partner. If, um, you know, 52 women were to be killed in a terrorist strike in Australia, um, all hell would break loose. We'd be putting very significant funds into into this. But because it's simply seen as domestic violence, we do relatively little and continue to close or defund uh, refuges. Um, these are very worrying problems of proportionality because l- law applies a standard. Is the is the measure is the is the um, ministerial discretion necessary and proportionate to achieve a legitimate aim? But governments have lived with fear; they've built on fear, and it's very hard for the opposition party to counter that because they will be accused of not defending borders properly. Many of these myths have been developed, uh, including the one that you've got to detain children for years on Nauru in order to stop people smugglers. Now, if the government was honest, they would admit that we're doing it because we've got an armada of of ships at a billion dollars a year or whatever the sum is, uh, stopping boats coming through. It's got nothing to do with holding children for years in those appalling conditions in Nauru. But this is the kind of simplistic argument and sloganeering that governments get away with. And and I'd say, really, I'd look for young people to be standing up and saying, this isn't good enough. We really want to have a much more transparent process.
0: Mm. And they do set the tone, and I think it's something that can be quite... Unconscious in terms of how that fear and um, you know need for extra protection can seep into Mm -hmm. our lives, um, and you know for us to kind of pander to terrorism and the fear of terrorism, and certainly um, a very small but example important example I think that crossed um, the desk this week was where the MCG decided to close their car park for all major events so that no one could go to the football and park around the ground like they used to do, like I used to Mm -hmm. do as a child um, for fear of a terrorist Mm. event and, um, and, you know a lot of these kind of examples cited are the events that Mm -hmm. unfortunate events we've had in the Melbourne CBD that weren't purportedly terrorist-related. And uh, I read a BBC report for this particular event and compared it to the other Melbourne-based media Mm -hmm. and it was interesting that um, the BBC uh, had noted at the end of the article that neither incident, and we're talking about those um, attacks of people using cars to... um, to attack other pedestrians uh, were terrorism related, but it doesn't really, that kind of challenge to these decisions aren't really being aired um, in the media. They're just kind of accepted now as the the state of alert that we're supposed to be in and the fear that, um, you know, is needed and required to keep us safe. I mean, is this something that is you know, becoming too pervasive
1: that we can't stop the train? Has the train already left the station? <laughs> well, I, I, don't, I don't think I'd ever, ever put it that way. I am much more optimistic. Uh, but I would like to see more people standing up uh, to put things in perspective, uh, to explain that a number of these incidents are uh, caused by people with mental illness who are well-known, but who have not got the proper level of support. That they need, or um, or control, if necessary, um, we, the, the real problems lie in in lack of community services, lack of community. Sometimes the isolation of these people. Once you get to know a little bit of their background, you realise how. Isolated and on the fringes of, of um, successful life in Australia, they've actually been, and I think we need to be much more attentive to those issues than to making hysterical comments about about terrorism. But 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 what you're describing is what is actually happening. What do we do about it? Well, I think we have to speak up. I think we have to. Insist on the on the facts, boring or otherwise, um, and we have to use our capacity for advocacy to to put the position in a fairer way. Um, I, recently, over well, the last few days, you, you'll know the controversy about um, you know Mr. Dutton saying you know that he wanted to give special visa uh, for, for for white farmers in South Africa. Well, there may be a case for them asking for a visa but the very idea that they should be given a preferred position when we have thousands of people in detention offshore and in mainland Australian detention centres um, is breathtaking in its um, hypocrisy and lack of humanity um, and a failure to understand what the the point about uh, human rights law about refugee rights the right to claim asylum whether or not they get granted uh, whether it's granted or not so I, I think we these are examples by Mr Dutton. He provides them with us regularly. Um, and, of course, it was in Melbourne where you had Operation Fortitude, another example of an abuse of executive power with no legislative basis for it at all. And I'm not um, so ever. So I think if we can speak up and remind the public of the extent to which they are being manipulated by um, conservative ideological government forces... Uh, and some bureaucrats that support it, then I think at least that goes some way to to getting us back to the truth rather than to to this fear-mongered politics.
0: Mm. And the way that we're describing this, um, I guess, evolution and change is post-truth. And that's a term which uh, it's not necessarily that new, although its use um, in this way is new. Um, John Keane, uh, who's a professor at Sydney University, talked about, you know, the... The references that were used to post truth in the '90s um, by a US playwright, but as you've said, uh, it's a new term in terms of the Oxford Dictionary mm-hmm. um, publishing that and and calling it the Word of the Year. Um, I mean, in terms of your understanding of post truth, what is it, and how do we, um, you know, provide nuance to it? Because at the moment, it does seem to be bandied about a lot without people really, really understanding. understanding
1: it. Well. Uh, I think it'd be fair to say that that um, for, for, for millennia, um, I think the Chinese um, three. Thousand years ago, used subterfuge and lies in 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 conflict and to achieve political outcomes. It's a very very well known phenomenon. Um, I recently saw that the marvelous film of uh, Churchill and the Darkest Hour. Now, uh, you know, one thing that uh, perhaps is not emphasised enough about Churchill is that he he actually ran ran a war of, of subterfuge and mis- misinformation, which was of course enormously effective. So we all know that the truth is sacrificed, in particularly in in war and in conflict, and it's sacrificed. We know. Politically, it's been well known that that politicians um, don't keep their promises and they'll often be a little um, light on the side of truthfulness. That's common. What is different, and I think is what we're trying to get to with this use of post-truth, is a growing tolerance for um, avoiding the expert view, the climate change reports being a classic example Um, and it is classic now because it's been going on for such a long time, Uh, evidence about harassment in universities and in in the public arena, racial abuse, discrimination, uh, racist um, uh, delivery of health services in remote and rural areas. The the facts have been uh, available for a long time. What is different about post-truth, arguably, is that there's a growing tolerance for it. In other words, a tolerance for for denying the evidence, denying the expert report and simply taking an ideological position. And and that, I think, is what is unusual, that we, we have the truth in front of us or we have the factual evidence to support a particular position, that we have a growing tolerance for saying, well, I don't actually care about that because, in my view, um, these things have either never happened when I was at university or, um, you know, uh, where I live, there's no erosion uh, and we don't get any difference in water levels at my beach house. I mean, that sort of level of discussion is a very – is one that really – avoids the the, the evidence that, that's right in front of our faces. And I think that's what's different.
0: Yes, and uh, certainly being able to select the information that you consume in a much greater mm-hmm. way, in a custom way, mm-hmm. um, has changed the way that we are exposed to arguments, what kind of arguments we do hear about, what evidence base we hear. Um, and I know that in one of your previous speeches you talked about uh, – story gathering and evidence gathering by journalists and even, you know, simple simple things like primary sources mm-hmm, and evidence, mm-hmm. um, you know, are not sought the opinions are sought more so than right. establishing a fact base on primary evidence. And I mean from I'm a avid historian myself so I'm pretty obsessed with primary sources and um, in my role even I've had journalists call me and say what happened with this and I say here's the link to the Hansard transcript Mm -hmm. Um, and they're like oh why would I want to read Hansard um, you know, because I said, well, there's verbatim what was said mm-hmm. in that right. inquiry and then you can extrapolate from that. So I think it's concerning. I mean, we don't want to pin all the blame on journalists, but it is really um, in this new environment of less time to, to gather facts for stories. It is easier and um, more desired to have opinions um, with a, a certain level of context, but not a great deal. I mean, how do we change not only the politicians and the way that they're behaving and ignoring reports and evidence um, and choosing a different route not based on that evidence. How do we, I mean, change those kind of feed-ins, the politics, the journalism, um, the people receiving all this information? How do we alter those key points?
1: Well, I think you're asking the right question, but I really struggle to find the answer. Um, you're quite right about Hansard I did say to one journalist, um, if, you look up journalist uh, if you look up Hansard I, you will see that this was the exact thing that was said and this is the question that was asked um, but again a look of complete astonishment that they should ever spend their time reading Hansard um, it, it, it is a very worrying trend but I haven't answered your question how do we deal with it um, I, all I can think of is to keep pushing back um, that's why I'm doing so many speeches around the country. Um, I'm not saying anything particularly new, but I am trying to get people to be much more sceptical about what they're being told and to challenge the authenticity of it. And I think that those journalists that are going to um, emerge from this uh, period will be the ones that have had the integrity to write well-researched pieces. Of course they can have an opinion. I mean, there's nothing wrong with having opinion pieces. But at the same time, it would be nice if those opinions were based on some fundamental basic facts. Um, We've seen so many good journalists also leaving journalism or being required to leave from from newspapers. Um, I think your point is also a very important one, and that is that people can avoid the truth or evidence by choosing their own media outlets or their social media. And that means that although we have more information available to us today than we've ever had before, certainly in my career, I've never had such access to accurate information. The irony is that it's actually fragmented. And people are less well-informed than they were when they simply read a newspaper that might have a number of different uh, aspects to it. Now they simply go to the news sites or the social media that confirms their own views. So we've got this hall of mirrors that they're now describing where we're simply reflecting back on ourselves those things we already believe. And I think that's very damaging.
0: Mm, It is. And... Gillian, you've picked up on a point that I just want to to finish with, which is that we need to use our voices and to start really um, advocating for ourselves and others, creating more of a community, bringing marginalised people in and up with us, Mm -hmm. not leaving people behind. And I know in some of your speeches uh, a couple of weeks ago around gender Mm -hmm. equality, you know, you've said the time is now to kind of discard this need to be, um, you know, really polite about these kind of things. I mean, in your personal journey and obviously you've had a lot of time to reflect through writing this book that um, that you've got coming out in October, how have you personally, you know, reached a point of advocacy and, you know, um, increasing your voice mm-hmm. on these really important issues? Like what's that change mm-hmm. been for you?
1: Well, it has been a, a change. I was really quite a conservative, quiet public international lawyer that you would never have heard of and certainly <laughs> wouldn't have read my books. Um, but I, I think I once I found myself in the public arena, I was so um, disappointed but astonished to realise that that clear facts and simple rules of law from the Magna Carta onwards, you cannot detain a person without charge or trial by their peers, absolutely simple rules, were being ignored. And I think I became then, in a sense, um, sort of radicalised in, in, in realising that it wasn't enough for me to write my learned books that no one was going to read, that it was time for me to speak up. But also I think, um, and I've made this point before, I, you know, I'm in my 70s, Uh, You're freer in your 70s. It's a remarkable thing for a woman. You know, you've had your children, you've developed your career, you've done all these various things. I don't think if I were 40 I'd be speaking the way I am. But I'm much more confident now because I believe that I'm right in making these arguments but somebody can argue against me, that's fine. Um, But I've not got very much to lose and I now do feel quite strongly that... When you have been in a privileged position like me with access to information, education, my generation of women, I think we own a responsibility to speak up and I'm very distressed that many people of my generation have left our sisters behind and that was really the message of International Women's Day. Um, We have got to be an inclusive society and if we're more inclusive and we avoid isolation, I think we can avoid these people with mental illness doing extreme acts. I think that this is the way to... It's 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 it takes time, it takes commitment, it takes money. But I think that's a far better way of using our taxpayers' dollar than in billions upon billions on so-called um, border security and offshore detention.
0: Exactly, and it's a happier place to live, isn't it? When Much you're... happier
1: for Australians, mm. and also. It's what Australia is. It is what we are, a multicultural society. I don't think, as the Prime Minister keeps saying, we're the most successful in the world. I think that's the most arrogant statement, but, but, it, but we are a very successful one. But we're, we're falling behind on all, on all the measures. I think The Economist sees us declining as a democracy. Uh, the Economic Forum, World Economic Forum, sees us declining to 45th for... Um, uh, for economic empowerment and uh, and, and basic rights, uh, whereas other countries like Canada, New Zealand, and so on are right up there at eight, nine, and ten, and that sort of bracket. So we are falling back in Australia. Um, so we're denying the very values that we that were so important to Australia in the forties and fifties and sixties and seventies. We've we've declined from that mm. and regressed, and I think that's very. Um, it's very disappointing for someone of my generation when I thought all these problems were fixed in the 60s. Uh, 50 years later, they aren't, they're definitely not. And we now need to take another look at them. Yeah. And some of those
0: values are still there in uh, areas like regional Australia and the country mm. where that sense of community and knowing each other and supporting each other does exist. So, we could learn a lot from our country uh, counterparts, uh, our city dwellers. So, um, certainly that's another element. Gillian, thank you so much for spending the time with us today to really delve into this topic and to use your voice, which is a really important uh, voice, an eloquent and articulate voice. Um, And I hope that everyone can make their way down to the Melbourne Law School to see Gillian's lecture, which is called The Decline of Parliamentary Democracy in a Post-Truth Era. It's free. You can book online. It's from 6 till 7pm this Friday, and it's in the David P. Durham Theatre Level 1 at Melbourne Law School, which is in Carlton. Thank you so much, Gillian. Thank you. It's been wonderful talking to you. And that was uh, Emeritus Professor Gillian Triggs, who was former president of the Australian Human Rights Commission. And she's now um, doing some amazing work in the community, advocating on a range of issues, as we've discussed. And also, obviously, look out for her book, which is coming out in October through Melbourne University Press. You are listening to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM with Amy Mullins. You've been listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a show broadcast on 3RRFM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and noon. Thanks for joining me.